Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Build Your Network, episode 140. Hey, this is Yost Jansen, former U.S. Navy SEAL. If you want to learn how to overcome struggle, you should be listening to the Build Your Network podcast with my good friend, Travis Chapel. You have the ambition, the knowledge, and the experience, but still lack those relationships necessary for achieving true success. Welcome to Build Your Network, your guide to growing your inner circle, increasing your influence, and assisting others in reaching their goals. This is networking the way it should be, brought to you by your host, Travis Chapel. What is up and welcome to the one and only show that brings you tips and tricks on networking from the best experts around three days a week. Although they may not all be in the same field, every guest that comes on the show has one very important thing in common. They believe, as I do, that building relationships is crucial to achieving success in life. I cannot wait to introduce you to today's guest, but First, if you have not done this already, please go ahead and schedule a quick chat with me. I would love to talk with you sometime just for 10 or 15 minutes over the phone. Um, head on over to buildyournetwork.co forward slash FB. And in the pinned welcome post in the top of my Facebook group, you'll see a link that goes directly to my calendar. And there you can schedule a quick chat. I'd love to talk with you sometime. So I'll catch you there or I'll catch you in the Facebook group. And now let's go ahead and chat with today's guest, Yost Jansen. Yost had a 12-year military career as a U.S. Navy SEAL, as well as five years as agency direct hire in support of counterterrorism. He has deployed and conducted operations in over 12 countries, including Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, Libya, Egypt, Korea, Vietnam, and the Philippines. He's performed as a trainer, advisor, stunt performer, and cast on several 
productions, including American Assassin, 13 Hours, The Mummy, Jack Ryan, Transformers, Iron Man, John Hancock, Red, Unlocked, and The Last Ship. Yost, welcome to the show, man. Super, super stoked to have you on. Why don't you go ahead and tell us what you are most excited about right now? Thanks, Travis. Uh, I appreciate you bringing me on. I'm excited about life in general. Right now, I am very blessed. I'm able to stay home with my family. I no longer deploy and I get to pursue passions as they come up. And right now, just about a year ago, I got into learning about cryptocurrencies. So I'm actually really excited about the learning aspect of that and just trying to see how it will change the world going forward. That's awesome. I listened to your stuff and following your career a little bit ever since I heard about you. I think it was probably through Nicholas from The Billion Dollar Body. But then I went to the event that he just had a couple of weeks ago down in San Diego and you spoke there. And once you were done speaking, I was like, man, I really got to get this guy on my show because you were just talking about so many different things that apply to everybody's life in different ways. So I kind of want to rewind the clock here and go back to talk about how you got involved in becoming a Navy SEAL to begin with. So can you talk us through like what happened happened in college and all that kind of stuff and what you were going to do and then how it shifted into becoming a Navy SEAL? Yeah. I never thought about being a Navy SEAL growing up. That wasn't even on my radar. I grew up in Canada and I didn't even know what a Navy SEAL was. It wasn't until the Charlie Sheen movie came out that I actually heard about Navy SEALs. Yeah. But what happened, I went and moved to the US. I married the girl in my dreams and became a paramedic, which is exactly what I was pursuing at the time. Mm-hmm. And we had a great life, loved the job. You know, it was one of those few jobs where I just got excited to go to work every day. My wife and I also started investing in real estate and we got married when I was 20. So we were like really young, but just trying to do everything, you know, living yeah. life and trying to get the best out of it all. And then one day, totally unexpected, uh, I got called in uh, halfway through my shift and they told me my wife was killed in a car accident. And that kind of changed everything for me. At that point, I kind of spiraled into kind of a destructive pattern. Everything that motivated me was gone. And everything I was trying to pursue didn't make any sense anymore. Hmm. And I think after the third time getting arrested, I just kind of woke up one day and go, you know, something's got to change. And it had to be something drastic. So I wanted to do something difficult. So I did a little bit of research and I read some articles and some books. And my decision at the time was, well, the most difficult thing I can find to do is become a Navy SEAL. So I drove to the recruiter's office and I'm like, sign me up. And they're like, no problem. And six months later, I was off to boot camp. Man, so much good stuff here to get into. And I, instead of diving in some of the content right now, I'm going to kind of keep stirring the story here because I think there's a lot more of the story to hear about. And the same themes keep getting brought up throughout the story. So let's just kind of keep moving along. So you go to boot camp and you start into the training. Talk a little bit about the boot camp training and then how your body was reacting to it and what that meant for you. Yeah, I made a commitment six months before I was going to show up to boot camp. And I was on a program where you can pretty much go straight from boot camp to SEAL training. And I showed up to boot camp already hurt. Like an idiot, I heard that all SEALs run in boots. So I decided to go from not doing much running to running every day in boots. And I had developed uh, stress fractures in my shins, plus the shin splint aspects. I was in pain just walking at that point. But I remember thinking to myself, well, I made a commitment to show up. Hmm. And showed up to boot camp. Boot camp's actually, maybe boot camp's not really that exciting or physical 
So I kind of cruised through there. I got to heal up a little bit in that process and then kind of like got in shape a bit. And, you know, I took the screening test and then I showed up the SEAL training. I was still kind of hurt showing up the SEAL training. So when I showed up day one, I actually had no real belief in myself uh, I was actually going to make it through. My only goal was to see how many days I could stay there before my injuries kind of prevented me from continuing. That's insane. So then what was the first week like? The first week I was just excited to be there. Like you could see that, you know, in the first few weeks, you're waiting for your whole class to show up. You can see the class in front of you doing all this fun stuff. And I remember seeing the class in front of me. They were still in first phase before hell week. Okay. And then they were going through the surf in these rubber boats and paddling. And it was a super high surf day. And I remember thinking, you know, I remember seeing them hit the waves and the boat gets flipped into the air and bodies and paddles are going everywhere. And I remember thinking like, my only goal right now is to make it that far into training. So at least I have one good story to tell after <laughs> I go home that, hey, we paddled boats through the huge surf and we got tossed everywhere. <laughs> and I had enough belief to think I could make it to that point. And that was only yeah. in like the second week of training. And we were, we had just showed up and we're waiting to kind of class up. It was a unique experience, you know, like I had no idea what to really expect. That was yeah. back in the days where there was no discovery channel. program yeah. <laughs> Just kind of show you what happened. Right, I, right. Just, I read as many books as I can find, but they're all from the Vietnam era and things like that. Like they didn't really give you a realistic picture of what you were walking into. Yeah. Yeah. Was there anything that was just like, crazy unexpected that you were just like blown away that you had to do that after you just finished something really brutal like was there any point where you're like wait seriously (laughs) or did that happen like was that a daily occurrence to where it was just too normal to even think about yeah usually it's not one thing that really goes oh wow this is like super crazy it's the cumulative effect of everything and seal training is designed to kind of like not one individual thing is not necessarily that hard but it's so broad. It's like, you have to be decent at everything. You don't have to be a professional athlete and everything, but you have to be decent. So if yeah. you have a weakness, if you have a weakness in the water, a weakness swimming, a weakness running or PT and pull-ups or just facing the cold, like whatever weakness you have, they'll find it. Yeah. And I do notice that a lot of times the guys who are gifted athletes don't last very long mm. because all their life, they've relied on those physical gifts to put them in the top tier where the guys have had to grunt it out their whole life to barely make the team. Right, right. Those are the guys that were able to stick it out. They're used to being, feeling like they're going to die. And if you're comfortable feeling like you're going to die, your chances of making it through some of this hard stuff is a lot better. Yeah, yeah. And every time that you're in that kind of a situation, you either practice quitting or you practice not quitting. Exactly. Uh, It's just crazy to me. Like, every single obstacle that came your way was another chance for you to prove that you're not a quitter instead of another another excuse of why you can't do it. That to me by itself is fascinating. So let's fast forward now like to the end of boot camp and something goes wrong with your your citizenship or something like that and you think that you just like are about to be out of the whole thing even though you just like went through the gauntlet. Yeah. Well, you know, boot camp is a little different than the actual buds. Boot camp is what every military person goes through just to enter the military. And then the BUDS, which is a SEAL training, is the screening process for to know to see if you can continue on to become a SEAL. So during those seven, six or seven months of SEAL training, they're not really training you so much as they are finding the right people to train. Hmm. So let's say, you know, if 200 people start, it's not unusual for 25, 28 guys to come out the other end. 
And once that's completed, then they're like, okay, now we can really start training. Okay. And you have to find out, like, it's not enough to not quit. Right. You also have to function, you know, at that point when you're cold, you're miserable, you're hurting and everything like that. You haven't slept, you're tired. Then you have to function, you have to lead, you have to perform. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of the misnomer is like, well, I just won't quit and that'll be enough. You know, it, it's sad to see some guys that are tough as hell and then fail an academic test, you know, like dive physics or something. It's, it's like, it used to drive me crazy to see that. Like you went through all that and that gets you like a simple test, but it does. Something gets everybody. But for me, you know, I started off with severe shin splints down the way over that a little early on in training using orthotics. But the side effect of that was it kind of reformed my foot. So now I had what's called iliotibial band syndrome. It's like on the outside of your knee gets so inflamed. And I remember like the first, second week of training, it was so bad that if I would just bend my knee, you could hear it squeak from like five feet away. And just it, so it wasn't anything that did permanent damage, but the pain was just horrible. Mm -hmm. And then I remember one instructor telling me, it's like, hey, if you want to get over it, you know, you go at the end of every day, go get a big ice pack, strap it to your knee and sleep all night with that ice pack on, you know, me being a former paramedic, I'm like, well, that's really bad medical advice, but I right. did it anyway. And it worked with the risk of causing frostbite to your you know, right. permanent right. damage. I didn't care. I just wanted to get through the next day and I did it every night and it got me through the next day. And right. then I went into hell week. So hell week is a portion of training. It's a fifth week of the first phase where you stay awake for five and a half days and you're constantly cold, miserable. And the whole purpose of that is to see who can really actually like finish the training. So that's where most people quit is, is either before or during that hell week phase. And if you make it through hell week, they start believing like, okay, he's tough enough to make it. So now they'll test you on other things later on in training. Is he good enough in the water? Can he do tactics? Can he do all the other stuff? But during hell week, I was really stressed because I didn't have my ice anymore. But by that time, ice is enough where the injury was reduced to the point where it didn't stop me. Yeah. And yeah. then I remember we're probably on the fourth night of hell week and they're doing an evolution where you run with the boats on your head and they just run you and run you and run you. I remember one time the boat bounced up and came down on my head and tore some of the ligaments in the back of my neck to the point where I couldn't lift my head again under my own power. So I had to like, whenever I could, either my chin was right on my sternum down, or I had to free up a hand to hold my head up. <laughs> and I remember going through the last, you know, two days of hell week and every instructor thought I was like, like mentally out of it because I yeah, looked yeah. like crap. And I had to several times sit there and convince them like, Hey, I'm okay. I'm answering the questions. Good. It's just my neck. You yeah, know? I just got to <laughs> hold my head up when I talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, after how week, you know, they give you one week to kind of, you know, it's the only week in seal training where you're allowed to walk, you're allowed to walk for five days because you are so injured swollen and all the stuff on your body is trying to heal up you're allowed to walk and i remember i was able to walk and then when it's time to run again my body couldn't run and they sent me into medical and did a bone scan and, and found out i had a femoral neck crack in my left femur so i had to get rolled back and let that heal at that point i had to repeat you know i got sent back two classes had to repeat a significant chunk of the training 
working again. But then I was on the roll, like went through dive phase and went through third phase. And I felt like every challenge I was up to it. One of the things in third phase I was really worried about, we did a 14 mile run where I calculated the pace was somewhere at a seven, 10 mile oh. in soft sand. And I'm like, man, so I'm like always stressing about that. But the crazy thing is by the time you get there, your body adapts to the point where you're able to do that. So it wasn't nearly as big of a thing in my head as I made it, which is a good lesson in itself too. Yeah. Then two weeks before graduation, we're on St. Clemente Island. We're in the last week of actual training and then we come home and then we graduate the week later. And they pulled me into the office and said, we have to kick you out of training because you are not an American citizen. And because you're not an American citizen, you cannot get a top secret clearance. And so you can't be in special operations. So that was pretty devastating. So, yeah, yeah. Well, you guys couldn't have told me that like week one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, I'm glad they did. Back <laughs> yeah. So, but it, it ended up, they just basically were like, hey, we will help you take care of this. And yeah, they messed with me for 10 days. You know, they kicked me out. And they called me back and say, there's no plane to fly you home. So off the island, back to Coronado. So why don't you just join your class again? And then the next day they're like, well, go to the airport. There's a plane coming for you. And they messed with me for 10 days. And then finally, somebody made a decision to let me graduate, put me on legal hold, and then let me sort my citizenship out. Gotcha. Gotcha. Which I did pretty quickly with their help. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Man, it's, it's, so uh, this is something I want to, I kind of want to talk about. I'm sure, I mean, you have some crazy stories that we could definitely get into, but can you talk a little bit about how seeking out struggle has helped you achieve like success after success after success? And I'm not, I don't mean it like in a masochistic kind of way. I mean it more like, Hey, do more hard things and you will be rewarded greater. Like, can you talk into that for a second? Yeah. It, it's the feeling you get when you finish SEAL training, you went through all of that, which is, you know, the hardest thing at that point I'd ever done in my life. You feel invincible. You start believing that anything you want to do, you can do. Mm. And that carries through on outside of the SEAL community. Like if you want to say, Hey, I want to start a business. I want to face some different fears. I want to do that. It's really effective. But one thing I've noticed though, is you can't do something difficult once. And that won't necessarily ride you through the rest of your life. The lesson I've learned now, after all these years later, that if you don't continue to do difficult things and do things that are outside of your comfort zone, and there's a little bit of fear and anxiety involved, then you get way comfortable very easy. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you know, because you, I was a Navy SEAL, nobody's going to say, hey, you should be doing this and that, you know, because they just don't because you're a Navy SEAL. I right. can relax right. now. But if you do relax, then your life starts going the wrong direction. Yeah. So for me personally, like, like I try to, you know, I don't always follow what I preach to the T, but I try to continue to do things that are well outside my comfort zone. And when they succeed, and all of them don't succeed, but when I do succeed, it gives me like that feeling that I can, again, that I can do anything going right. forward. Right, right. So give us a couple of examples of what that might look like. So, because I don't want people to get this idea of like, you know, your problems don't matter type thing. Like, I'm just saying that you shouldn't always seek out what's most comfortable. And our society is notorious for seeking out most comfortable things and for teaching our, you know, kids and grandkids to not have struggle and to try to prevent them from doing hard things and trying to make life as easy as possible for them. So, can you give us like a couple of examples of what that might be for somebody? Yeah, let's talk about society first a little bit and yeah. culture. 
the kind of culture we're all in right now. I'm raising two young boys, my wife and I, and they are 11 and 12 years old right now. Mm -hmm. And all around me, the standard of good parenting right now is you remove all struggle from your kid's life. Mm -hmm. You make it easy for them to go places, to play with the sport they want to do and make them comfortable and buy them nice things, spoil them on their birthdays. You know, you keep going down the list. And I noticed nobody's asking their kids to go through pain, suffering, or build mental fortitude or anything like that. And I see what's happening around me. I mean, don't even get me started about the childhood obesity thing or anything, but that's a whole nother topic. But really, like I, I noticed my kids, it takes so little for them to become entitled. Yeah, right. And, you know, so I made it a point to as much as possible to have them do things that are scary to most kids or difficult, you know, and one of the things I'm doing with as a whole family is like, we decided to, Hey, let's hike the Pacific crest trail. And for those of you that don't know what that is, it's a trail that starts at the border of Mexico and goes all the way on the West coast up to the border of Canada. So it's 2,650 miles. And a lot of crazy people will do that in one, you know, in one year, within a year, within Mm -hmm. a season and four or five months, they can finish it. But with the kids, we decide to kind of chunk it up. We'll do like a three day, a four day trip at a time and slowly move our way up there. And it's difficult for them. And we've hit downpour rain. Just a few months ago, we got caught into a big snowstorm on top of a mountain at 8,000 feet, you know? And so they have to, I mean, you see them and they're, they're miserable, but it's like, Hey, we don't have a choice. We're up in the mountain. Right. get hit by a snowstorm. <laughs> exactly. so let's figure out how to survive the night and then we'll continue on. And it's it's just making them do things where it wouldn't even be a big deal a couple hundred years ago. Right. Yeah, but exactly. No, but nobody's exactly. doing it anymore. You right. know? And it's the same thing as you know, when we pick sports for them, my kids wanted to race BMX and race motocross. Mm-hmm. And it's a sport that it puts you out of your comfort zone. I love seeing my kids like on the starting ramp at the Olympic training center. And it's a big, steep launch ramp. And when I, that gate goes down, you're flying and you're immediately in the air off the first jump. And I can see like the tension and nervousness on their face. And I know that they're out of their comfort zone and yeah. they still do it. Like I'm trying to build that pattern. It's like, Hey, you don't want to really do this. You would rather be anywhere else right now, but you do it anyway. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters 
is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Yeah. And I love that. And it's so funny that you bring that. I mean, like you said, a couple hundred years ago, it's super normal. Like that's yeah. just what you do. Like when yeah. you're going to the next town, you walk there, <laughs> you know, know. Or you're on a horse. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. that's something that I've really tried. That's why I'm, I'm asking. I'm curious about this because it's something I'm really trying to implement to my own life is thinking about like, how are we supposed to live? Like, how are we like, you know, in our biology made to exist and it's only been in the last hundred years that we've like super comfortable and really the last like yeah. 50, 60 years where like we get in a car and we drive places and we can, you know, get on the escalator or an elevator to go up flights of stairs instead, or we can go from our air conditioned car to our air conditioned house, to our pool, to like this place to make me more comfortable here. Or I can turn on the heater when it gets cold. I can have everything, the perfect temperature that I want it to be so that I'm never, ever uncomfortable. And it just teaches you that like, I think that the small struggles at that point seem giant because yes. you don't, you've never dealt with anything that you've had to like, like you said, have mental fortitude through. Like you don't have any real issues. So like when you stub your toe on the corner of the bed or you forgot your keys in your house, you're like getting to this outrage and you're upset at the world for three hours. You're like, well, I guess it's just one of those days. You know what I mean? It's like, bro, you left your keys in your house. You know what I mean? Like there's such a, a skewed idea of what real struggle is. And, uh, you know, I noticed too, there are times like when I'm overseas and, you know, on a tough deployment trip or something like that, like I'm thinking, Hey, I'm going to go home and all I'm going to do is chill, relax and sit on the couch and watch TV and (laughs) do nothing. And, you know, and then I start, I go home and I do that and I'm like, wow, this is so not what I thought it was going to be. This is is so anticlimactic. So then, you know, at that point you got to keep reminding yourself when I start working, for a goal. And that goal involves comfort or making my life easier. I know now that's not the right goal for me. It's not going to satisfy. It's going to have an inverse effect. So right now I try, like when I have a goal, I want it to be something, first of all, where the probability of success is low. Because you know, if the probability is low, whether you make it or not, if you make it, it's a bonus. Yeah. But yeah. just the fact that you're out there pursuing something that very few people are pursuing is very satisfying. So not like running a 5k or something like that. <laughs> no, I mean, it's like for me, like right now with all my past injuries of all, all these years, it's like something out of reach for me and low probability. Let's say I do a hundred mile ultra marathon. Now the chance of me being able to finish something like that at this point in my life is very low. And because of that, it's very interesting to me to someday maybe try it. Hmm. <laughs> That's such a, I just love that perspective. I love that mental perspective because it's the only thing that holds us back from doing those kinds of things is ourselves and what we think we are capable of doing. And the only thing that makes us think that is the culture that we've grown up in that makes it yeah. seem like that's impossible or that's out of your reach. There's no way you can do it. 
And here's a big thing. Like nobody knows their limits. And the only way to know your limits is you push yourself all the way to your limits. Hmm. And it's awesome to know exactly where that is because you'll surprise yourself at where your limits really are. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much good stuff here. And by the way, this goes like across the board too. So it isn't just like a physical thing that we're talking about as far as like run an ultra marathon or do, you know, a Spartan race next year or something like that. It's like, uh, I mean, you were even talking a little bit before Yost about like how difficult it was for you to jump up on stage and speak to an audience of people, right? That would be an example of doing something that was out of your comfort zone. It totally was. It's like, I've never really had to do that before. At the most, I do a brief in front of my platoon or people. And a brief is easy. It's very technical to the point. It's no big deal. Mm -hmm. But my biggest fear of going on stage is I have a fear of sucking. You know, I have a fear <laughs> that, that I'm not going to deliver what I know in the back of my mind I'm capable of doing. Yeah. And the easy way is just to say no. And I remember the first, I think last year was the first time I really spoke to a big group on Nicholas's first BDB event. And I remember three years before that, Nicholas was like saying, hey, you should do this. You should speak. And I'm like, and just kind of to shut him up. I'm like, hey, if you ever get 100 people in the room, I'll come speak, you know, yeah, thinking yeah. there's no flying chance that's ever yeah. going to happen. You know? And then he did it. <laughs> and then he did it. <laughs> but it's good. But it built a pattern for me. Like, first of all, it's like whatever comes out of your mouth, you have to do because yeah. words are powerful. Mm -hmm. So if you say it, you do it. And yeah. not just to other people, mostly to yourself. Right. You know, it's the people that say that wake up and go on Monday, I'm going to start working out or I'm going to start my new diet or I'm going to have a morning routine and then Monday rolls around and it doesn't happen. You just lie to yourself. Right. And you just built a pattern of deceit. And yeah. it's so much easier the next time. Like you said earlier, you're practicing being awesome or you're yeah. practicing yeah, it's quitting. And so yeah, I've always been in the habit, like I'm very slow to agree to things because once I do, I feel like that's a commitment both yeah. to myself and second, mostly to myself, but also the other person Yeah, where in our society, we would rather commit to somebody else and let ourselves down every day. You're always practicing something like that. I think yeah. people get that wrong is yeah. they're like, well, it, when I get up, that's when I'm practicing that habit of getting up. It's like, no, no, no. When you decide to sleep in, you're practicing the habit of sleeping in as well. Like it, it's, yes. it's both. Like you're always practicing something. You're just either going to practice quitting or you're going to practice sticking in it and getting that extra rep in or getting up when you say you're going to. And I love that you touched on that because I've spoken with a couple of like really big heavy hitters in the business world on the show before and they've attributed self-confidence to the same thing. And self-confidence is the root, I think, of where everything stems from. Your mindset and your confidence in your own ability to get something accomplished. And the number one way to grow your self-confidence is to keep the promises that you make to yourself. If you can't even keep the promises that you make to yourself, like how can you expect other people to believe in what you have to share with the world? Like You have to believe in yourself. And the best way to believe in yourself is to not lie to yourself yeah. and to not build that pattern of doing the opposite of what you say you're going to do. So man, there's just so much great, great content there to dive into. But I really want to talk a little bit about like what, just like a, a story that you have, like something that you did on a deployment or were a part of something that not a lot of people would be able to sympathize with. And could you just share like a quick anecdote or a quick story, like a couple minutes, just something that uh, you've experienced in your traveling and deployments and stuff? 
Yeah, I'll tell you a time where I actually felt very uncomfortable. And this is after I got out of the SEAL teams, I was working for the agency and our mission's different. We work sometimes in very small teams, two guys together, four guys together. And normally like to us in the special operations, it's like you kind of like expect at some point, yeah, hey, you may get in a firefight, you may die and everything like that. And we're all very comfortable with that. And one time we had to do a little recon for an operation we were going to do a few days later. And part of that recon was we're just going to get into an armored vehicle that was made to look like a local vehicle. And we needed to go check this area out and see what the routes were like and, and the checkpoints and everything like that. And I remember like it was actually eight years ago or so. But I remember watching the Summer Olympics. So it wasn't that long ago, like six years ago or something like that. And we were watching the Summer Olympics. And I remember thinking, hey, I really don't want to go do this. I really want to just stay and watch the Olympics because I actually had a friend that was competing that night. I'm like, dang it, you know, we have to do this. And the only thing in my mind is like, all right, let's go get this done and try to get back in time so I can watch the event I wanted to see. So, and I remember going out, it was me and another guy who was also a former SEAL. And unfortunately, at that point, we were very short staffed. Normally, there should be six guys in country on our team. So there were really only three. One okay. guy stayed back and the two of us went out. Mm-hmm. And I remember we went out and we went through a pretty like a rogue checkpoint that wasn't government. It was some tribe militia running it. And I remember pulling in there, having a bad feeling because it wasn't lit up at all. It was really dark. And then in Yemen, they chew cot, which gets you really high and amped up. It's like a drug that the big portion of the population will chew over there. And you can see like these guys are all hopped up on cot and a lot of times we'll go in there and, and show our IDs to get through and everything. And I remember the guy started like grabbing our stuff out of our hands and it was getting kind of out of control. So, you know, so I look at the guy next to me who was driving. So I remember reaching across, grabbing our stuff back and he slammed the door and we kind of took off and ran the checkpoint thinking that would be all right, whatever, no big deal. But they opened fire on us and shot up our vehicle a little bit. But you know, it, we're still fine. It was you know, pretty well-armored vehicle, so none of the rounds penetrated. But then they got in the vehicles and started chasing us. And now we're in a part of the, we're outside the capital city. We've never been there before, never been on these roads. Our maps really suck. And so we're trying to get out there and we had this big plan to do this huge like three-hour circle and do this big perimeter around and come back and from the north again. And it just went from bad to worse. At the time, we radioed back, told them what happened, told them our plan. But there was only one guy there, and they were like, well, keep us up to date. And then they tried to stop us at other checkpoints. We just didn't even slow down and blew through them. And finally, like hours into it, we started coming back to the main city. Like you almost started feeling we were home free. And then all of a sudden, we round this corner and there's gun trucks and, you know, like 50 cal mounted on the back of a pickup truck and about 30 guys, you know, with AKs. And so we were done. They had us. So I remember sitting in that vehicle, you know, and they wanted us to get out, but we knew exactly what would happen at that point. Mm-hmm. So then they started like uh, just taking their guns and trying to smash the windows and the locks and try to get in. And and we had no comms. We were so far out of town still, all of our communications didn't work. Our little mini local cell phones didn't work. So I remember sitting there and we're talking to each other. Like there's no need to do anything in a big rush, but I start feeling it's like, well, the right thing to do is to kind of like, even though we know nobody's coming for us, we want to wait this out a bit. Yeah. Because a minute, if we open this door and engage, I mean, we'll be dead within a minute. 
Right. And if we give up, then we might have a fighting chance or we may be on TV being beheaded the next day. Who knows? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. or we may disappear somewhere and never to be heard from again. Yeah. So I remember sitting there just feeling like, man, like all of our training is like quick reaction, you know, everything to do. But, you know, after talking, it's like, well, the best thing to do is just to wait it out yeah. to make a rather long story short. Like we're three hours into it and they weren't actively trying to break in a car the whole time. They would just try to break into something and then they'd take a little break. And, and I knew eventually they would, and whenever they wanted that 50 cal could just rip that car out whether right. it's armored or not, right through the windshield, whenever they wanted to, they had us. But I think they wanted us. They wanted us alive. alive yeah, they yeah. wanted us alive, yeah. yeah. And a weird thing happened. Like, finally, the traffic had built up and backed up and everything. And so they actually pushed us off the road, maybe like not even 20 feet off the road, slightly higher elevation. And and uh, so we're sitting there, and all of a sudden, our repeater hit. So we're able to communicate back. No way. Yeah. And the funny thing is like we were when that happened all those hours later with no communications and no nothing and know that that nothing that we did or, you know, all of our little things we tried to write on paper and put on the windshield, none of it worked. Mm-hmm. We were like within probably a few minutes of saying our best move is just to take off our guns, leave them on the floorboard and give ourselves up. Mm. Because if we go if we get out with guns up, they're just going to shoot us. You know, yeah. we're 30 to one or 30 to two. And we were so close to actually making that decision when finally we got comms and got the repeater and, and not to drag the story on, but somebody from the embassy was able to negotiate a deal and then gave us a number. So we kept pace. We wrote that number down and the name down. We pasted that up there and we kept trying to get these guys to call the number. And they wouldn't call it. But eventually they did. They called the number and I saw the guy calling and he's just angry. He's pissed off. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, well, that's a good sign. <laughs> and to make a long story short, they were able to negotiate letting us go. And the crazy thing is like, I remember finally getting back. I mean, it's like 12 hours later. And because of the time change, the Olympics are still playing. And, and I remember thinking like, hey, like 10, 12 hours ago, the only thing I cared about was watching these stupid yeah. Olympics. And then, yeah, like, but it, it did like affect me because, <laughs> it, you know, I hate feeling helpless. I hate feeling like that the right decision is not to act. Like we, right. you know, right. uh, people that, I mean, we love to react with force, you know, that right. with overwhelming force, we like to do quick decisions and get out of situations that way. We don't like to to sit there and do it the slow way, even though that ended up getting us out of the situation. And crazy, crazy. I know that you probably have dozens and dozens of those stories, but that was one that you kind of touched on at the event. And I wanted to kind of jump into that before we finish up here. So I do need to ask this last question before we move into the last segment here, Yost, because I ask every guest that comes on the show, do you believe that what you know or who you know is more important and why? (laughs) Okay, let me tell you, a few years ago, I would definitely say what you know. Okay. And the reason is, it's like, I love learning and I love research to this day. When there's something I don't understand, I get obsessed. And I remember when I first discovered cryptocurrencies a year ago, I don't think I slept for a week. I was just like, just gathering info, you know, fill my brain up. I feel like I missed out six years worth of information. I'm trying yeah, to pack it all right. in few weeks. And, and I still have that. But lately, now that I'm kind of out of special operations, it's been a few years since I deployed, The I'm learning and now I'm working more in the Hollywood arena and things like that. Having a network and having people know you 
I find it super valuable that people get to know not just who you are, but let people actually judge you. Let people decide. It's like, hey, is this guy reliable? Is this guy somebody I want to work with? Yeah. So to me, it's more important, not only who you know, but what they do, they respect you. The people you respect, respect you. Like I've worked really hard now is like, I try to get people's trust very quickly. And a lot of times when you're working on a new project in Hollywood, you have very limited time to gain people's trust. So you Mm -hmm. need to like really focus on this. It's like, I need to make you believe, which is actually true that you can trust me. I'm going to make sure, you know, especially if I'm training, you know, a higher level actor or something is like, I need you to trust me that if I tell you to do something, I'm going to make you look good. And if you can do that and make the relationship real and beyond just sharing technical knowledge, man, that's been really helpful. Yeah. That's super cool. That's super cool. Who are a couple of like the main actors or actresses or people that you've worked with that you've just really enjoyed working with? Not necessarily like the best or like highest paid or whatever, but like just people that were just fun to work with and, and be around. Yeah, more recently, I worked on a few projects with John Krasinski. Really, really enjoy working with him, too. And he's such a talented actor. And and he actually really cares. Like, he wants it to go right. I remember when we were filming the movie called 13 Hours about the mm-hmm. Benghazi incident. Two of my friends were actually killed during that event of Benghazi. And I had to do next to kin notifications for Glenn Doherty's family when that happened. And he, when he took that main role as a lead actor in that like he spent a lot of time with the real guy and just getting to understand and yeah i just love people that really want to do a good job especially with like a true story when they remake it i just did american assassin so i get along really good with dylan o'brien just love his passion and his talent and you know he's just really real like a lot of times you imagine certain people are going to be a certain way and then it's just everybody's normal. It doesn't matter. You know, and I've worked with Michael Keaton. I work with Tom Cruise. I work with a lot of higher level people, but at the end of the day, it's like, no matter how successful somebody is, they're really not that much different than everybody else out there. They just yeah. have just a passion and a drive. That's just a little bit bigger than others. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. Super cool, man. Yeah. We could have a whole nother conversation about networking and business and influence and all that kind yeah. of stuff too. I mean, there's like, we are running out of time. So let's go ahead and move on to the last segment here. Something I like to call the random round. Just a few really quick random questions with some quick random answers. You ready? Okay. This is the random round. What profession other than your own, do you think it would be fun to attempt? Hollywood stuntmen full-time. Full-time. If you could sit on a park bench with someone past or present and talk to them for an hour, who would it be and why? Churchill, I just want to hear how everything kind of went down the Second World War and then what his mind was thinking and everything. I'm just fascinated by it. That's always my answer too, is Churchill is just a fascinating guy. How do you like to consume content? Books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts, or videos? I went from books, heavy into books, but now I'm I'm podcasts. I have to drive to LA for auditions about once a week and that gives me six hours of uninterrupted podcast time. and I love it. Sweet. What's a podcast that you listen to pretty regularly that you'd recommend? Lately, you know, and I listen to, granted, I listen to 15 different podcasts on a regular basis, but I'm really enjoying Joe Rogan. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the best. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. What I try to do is I focus on the things that I don't want to skip first. Like lately, I've been going, I want to do at least one, but usually two workouts a day. And so I'll get up. I'll do a little bit of work. I get up before the whole rest of my family. So it's nice and quiet. I do a little bit of work on the computer and mostly in my small businesses, uh, you know, just a little bit of maintenance work. And then I just 
you know, I do either one or two workouts in the morning and I drink bulletproof coffee. I mean, that's usually every morning like that, unless I have to get up and go somewhere. Got it. Got it. What is your go-to pump up song? <laughs> I would say anything by Eminem. Anything by Eminem. All right. Anything by Eminem. Yeah. What is something that you're just not very good at? How much time you got? <laughs> <laughs> and the interesting thing is I honestly, like I surrounded my life with doing a lot of physical things, but a naturally horrible athlete and not that strong, <laughs> not that fast. But you know, that goes to show hard work trumps talent. And if you keep believing that, it'll be true. As we get everything wrapped up here, Yos, what is one place online where we will be able to find you the most? Uh, I'll tell you what, I work with Nicholas and Amanda Fairley in a group called the Billion Dollar Body and the Billion Dollar Brotherhood. So if you want to see me, just join uh, Billion Dollar Brotherhood on Facebook. I'm on there. And anytime I'm out there doing speeches or anything like that, it's usually they organize it for me. Cool. Cool. Awesome. So if you want to connect with Yost, just head over to the Billion Dollar Body Facebook group and then uh, say what's up to him over there. Um, reach out, tell him thanks for serving, tell him thanks for coming on the show and tell him that you heard about him here on Build Your Network. Yost, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Had a fantastic time chatting with you. Thanks, Travis. This is awesome. Man. That's all for this episode of Build Your Network. Your next step is to visit byn.media slash FB to join in on our Facebook group for more personal engagement, proven strategies and tactics to reach your ultimate goals. That's byn.media forward slash FB. Remember, you're only one connection away. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.